welcome to The Green Urbanist, the podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. This is episode number 10, which feels a bit like a milestone. And, uh, you know, I started the podcast four months ago, a bit less than four months ago, and I've had such a good response. So thank you to everyone who has been listening and has given me feedback. Um, it's really great. And uh, thank you to everyone who's been a guest and uh, shared their experience and knowledge with us. I've got some great guests coming up over the next few weeks. Um, and if you think you have a message or a topic you'd like to discuss on the podcast, or if you have a recommendation for a podcast guest, please get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram, uh, or you can email me at greenurbanistpod at gmail.com. So today's episode is a conversation with Justin Hunt. Justin is a Canadian engineer and entrepreneur and CEO of an exciting company called Blaze Transit. Blaze is an AI-based software platform that allows transit operators to run on-demand bus services using their existing vehicles. What does that mean? Well, essentially, instead of running a traditional bus route on a fixed line, passengers can open a smartphone app and request to be picked up. The bus will then alter its route to pick up passengers on the most convenient and efficient route. You may be thinking that this sounds crazy, but Justin explains how using this demand-driven system makes it possible to provide bus services in areas where traditional bus routes don't get enough ridership um, and don't provide people with a good alternative to using the private car. It can also save money for bus operators because you have less empty buses on the roads. The discussion also goes more broadly into the wider field of future of mobility, how technology is revolutionizing movement and how we can leverage this to make cities more sustainable while also offering a better service for passengers and serving more members of society. We talk about some pretty nerdy stuff, but don't worry, you don't need a degree in computer science to follow along. A lot of these topics are fairly new to me as well, and Justin explains them in a very clear, jargon-free way. It's a fascinating conversation, and if you want to learn more about Blaze, you can go to their website um, and check them out on social media. You can also, of course, follow this podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Links for all of those are in the show description. So please enjoy my conversation with Justin. Hi, Justin. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Ross. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, where are you calling in from? Uh, so I'm calling from Montreal, Canada. Fantastic. Yeah. Is that your hometown? Yeah, it's my it's my hometown. I grew up in uh, in the suburbs of Montreal, and uh, and uh, it's where my company is based at the moment. Maybe we can start to talk a little bit more about uh, your background and about Blaze Transit itself. You can tell us a bit about yourself uh, and a bit about the company. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'll, I'll go back to where it all started, which is really in in the suburbs of of Montreal. Since I, <laughs> I studied, uh, I did my studies at. Um, at McGill University uh, here, and, and it's, it's a great university, and one of the reasons I decided to stay local. Um, but that meant I, I kept living with my parents uh, in the suburbs, which is is not a is not very far from the downtown core. Um, but to get there by public transit is is quite the adventure. <laughs> and uh, and so 
Um, I always had a, a, a very much a love-hate relationship with public transit um, in the sense that I believed very much that it was our um, it was our social and environmental duty to use public transit where available, where possible. Um, but at the same time, I was so continuously frustrated uh, with the, the lack of frequency, with the unreliability, or with the sheer fact that, um, you know, I was using public transit to be more sustainable, yet for the last 20 minutes of my commute most days, I was sitting by myself on this empty 12-meter diesel bus getting chauffeured around the, the suburbs of Montreal. And so um, so towards the end of my, my education, and, and by the way, I did not study transportation or urban planning or anything like that. I studied engineering and, um, and learning how to basically use technology to solve large um, issues. That's the way that I kind of see engineering. Okay. And, uh, and so towards the end of my degree, I thought to myself, well, you know, we're we're in the, the 21st century and it's hard to believe that, um, you know, there's still such a lack of optimization and a lack of, uh, of reliability and flexibility when it comes to public transportation. Um, when there's all this technology around us and all these other services that are popping up competing now with public transit, um, yet somehow we've stayed a little bit behind the times when it comes to uh, public transport operations. Um, so... So that's, um, and then, like I said, I didn't have a, a, a formal educational background in public transit. It was just an area I was always very passionate about, uh, learning about new concepts. And then, um, and then uh, it's um, really the idea of Blaze came to me when I was, you know, sitting, sitting on the bus uh, at one point. And I thought to myself, um, you know, what if we just ask people where they want to go in advance? and plan the, the operations around this. Instead of always basing ourselves on kind of what's been done in the past, we're mm -hmm. now looking forward um, at where people want to go so that we can really start to balance its supply and demand. We don't have these empty buses on the road and we don't have buses that are arriving late because they picked up way more people than they anticipated um, and things uh, of this sort. Uh, and so, so uh, that's how Blaze was founded around that concept. And what it materialized as the, what our solution is, uh, is an on-demand public bus software platform. So, so what this basically means is that users can input their trip requests or the ride requests in advance. And we create brand new bus routes and schedules for our partner transit agencies to follow with their existing fleets and stop networks. Mm. So, uh, and I think you're totally right about this idea that buses have basically been the same uh, since, you know, for the past hundred years or whatever, since, since the first buses were invented. It's basically like you decide a route and you set a timetable and then people buy tickets and they can take the route. Um, yeah. And it's amazing that over this time, our, our lifestyles have changed so much. And yet we're still trying to get people to, to sort of use this very rigid system. Absolutely. And if, um, if you don't uh, mind me, me interjecting, that's actually how we came up with a name for Blaze Transit. Um, it's named after Blaise Pascal, who's credited with inventing the first concept of public transit in 1662. Um, so that was roughly, um, was it 358 years ago now? Uh, <laughs> and so we've, you know, and, and his was a, a large horse carriage um, in Paris that would go along a fixed 
kind of loop and fixed schedule that would pick up people and bring them um, to to wherever they need to go. And so that's how we used to pitch Blaze. Actually, was referencing Blaze because really, you know, the operations or the fixed routes and fixed schedules haven't really changed much since then. And despite making huge advances in, you know, now we have con combustion powered vehicles and GPS and all this connectivity, and yet we're still doing the same things as uh, as Monsieur Pascal. Um, <laughs> so so I think that's what's uh, what's super interesting is that, um, you know, things have been relatively unchanged and it hasn't caused as many problems as it does today, because I think that, um, you know, in the past, if you didn't have a vehicle, you know, public transit was your only option. Mm. But now, as we know, um, that's not your only option. There's a wide variety of, of, of transportation services that are available now competing with public transit. Um, and that's something that we need to uh, really reflect upon and, and what is best from a sustainability perspective and from kind of a social perspective as well. But I think what's um, what's also super interesting, what you said, is that we would kind of install these fixed routes and expect people to just basically adapt to them and buy mm. tickets to use them. Um, where, you know, what we're proposing is the complete opposite, where people tell us where they want to go and we build it around them. So we're, we're adapting the system to the individual needs of the of of the passengers instead of asking them to adapt themselves to the transit system it could it could actually i mean i'm just thinking off the top of my head now could have interesting um uh, an interesting impact on on how we think about i mean urbanists call it transit oriented development mm -hmm. which is that you you will plan developments which are supported by um by public transport um, maybe buses, but also tram lines or light rail, that kind of thing. Whereas now, if you don't have this this central hub like a bus stop or or, or a station, may, maybe that that idea becomes a little bit more dispersed because now you can, it's it, as you said, it's on demand. The routes will change all the time depending on who needs the bus. Um, it's a very interesting way of switching it. Yeah, exactly. And I think with um, with with trams and and with more kind of um fixed infrastructure where you obviously cannot if you have a new subway or metro system or a tram or light rail you cannot change that route so easily yeah. uh, once it's been installed um so so i think with there the, there's you can obviously have variable schedules but i think that urban planners and designers should be looking ahead and i know they do look ahead you know many decades into the future and, and where they predict um how they predict the population is going to change or the population spread and density is going to change around those areas and making sure that something is um you know that's going to survive the the test of time is is put in place um but certainly we know that there's so many variables that go into those those models that things can change so rapidly as as we have seen very recently um that you know what was relevant um you know for for a tram uh 60 or 70 years ago may not be uh relevant today um yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I was just having a conversation earlier today with a um uh with with a client a local authority um in England, a sort of small to medium-sized city, and they were saying that they don't have control over any of their bus services. All their bus networks are run by um private companies. Mm -hmm. And it's been like that for for many years. And so they don't they they would love to have lots more routes to to serve people who aren't, you know, getting bus services at the moment, but they just can't, they just have no uh, authority over that. Um, 
and I, I and of course if you're if you're a private company you're not going to operate a route that it operates on a loss um yeah and so you know which we w- wouldn't expect them to um whereas i can i can totally see this uh the blaze transit system becoming a way to make um let's say if you had a fixed route that was just not getting enough ridership you could put in this sort of uh blaze system where you could still serve people who are in that general area uh but just in a much more efficient way Exactly. That's the whole idea behind it. And it's a win-win situation for both the authority, um, the bus operator and the users where um, there are going to be no longer, there would never be a situation where there would be an empty bus circulating um, in in a town or a city because of the fact that we're always going, we're only going to where people need transportation services. And we're always following the shortest path in between each of those to get people to where they need to go. And so we've, we've done, you know, several analyses of, of, of cities ranging from, from very small small towns to, to larger mid-sized cities. And, um, and it's, it's, um, it's surprising even for us to see how much money they could be saving uh, by just optimizing mm. uh, their, their lines around where people want to go. And so, and we have, um, we have a lot of examples that we often point to when, when speaking to new cities about how uh, if you know, their existing trips had been ran and on demand, we could serve close to 100% of all the trips that they would be required, um, but with you know, up to a third less resources and a third wow. less, of, less time that uh, vehicles are spending on the road um, and, and, and paying for drivers and gas and, and all this. And then at the same time, the, the routes are also, or the, the trips for the passengers are also becoming significantly shorter. Um, so I think that it's in the best interest of operators who are trying to optimize costs and transit authorities who are trying to expand coverage and focus on more kind of accessibility um, than, uh, than the way it's currently set up. And I, I think there's also another issue that you hinted on there, which, which is often how these agreements are set up between the operators and the authority or the, the cities um, where they have in place these long um, contracts that could be three years, five years long, uh, where the operators in, you know, um, put in place and, and they're mandated to fulfill certain fixed bus lines for the next five years. Mm. So that means the city or municipality cannot change very much because it's been set in place and they're being the operators getting paid uh, to, to serve these bus lines with these resources. And so if, say, demand drops way lower in an area, well, the city can't just say after year two, okay, let's just remove this bus line and save us some money if no one's using it and reallocate these resources to another bus line. They don't have often that flexibility. Um, so, so that's kind of another, another great problem with how these are put in place. And so we often encourage um uh, our you know partners cities that we're, we're in, in touch with to uh, to include provisions to allow this sort of flexibility and many uh, actually who have put in place on-demand services end up going with a separate private operator for the on-demand service compared to the one that they're using for the fixed service so um, there's mm. definitely some some work to be done uh, in that area as well so so it could play a complementary role um yeah, absolutely. Like if you want to, you know, if a small town or actually any size city wants to expand coverage, but doesn't necessarily want to put in a whole other fixed bus line, um, they could expand coverage with an on-demand service only, where they say, okay, we're going to service this whole kind of, you know, large suburb that didn't previously have any access to public transit, but it's just going to be on demand. Mm. And we propose the same things. There's many 
surprisingly, there's many small cities that uh, still do not have any sort of transit system. And so yeah. they, when they look to actually putting them in place, they're now kind of leapfrogging over the fixed service and they're going straight to on-demand, um, which I find super, super interesting as well. Um, so it's not, it, it could be complementary. It could replace service uh, or um, anything kind of in between. Yeah, that, that makes that makes total sense. Um, in, in terms of, do you need a certain density of population to make this work? So the answer to that question is no, it doesn't. It works in, in all contexts, but it depends uh, on the objective. So okay. in smaller towns where the density is quite low, uh, the transit authority with with a platform like ours will be able to actually say that uh, they don't mind if there's one person per vehicle. Our objective is just to serve uh, kind of um, mm. as as wide range of a of a, of a geographic area as possible. And so we're going to set the minimum load capacity to one. So that means even if there's one person that wants to ride at three o'clock in the morning, we're going to serve them no matter what. Okay. Um, versus with other um, transit authorities that know they do get much higher ridership typically, um, they can set that capacity limit to be a little bit higher so that um, we ensure we're creating routes where we're filling up the vehicles with at least, say, five or 10 passengers. Um, so that may end up, um, may end up, you know, giving, um, creating more kind of efficient operations where, uh, where it doesn't really make sense to have, you know, just one person per, per vehicle. Sure. Um, so, so that's, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but uh, it's really up to uh, the transit third, but we've seen it work in, in, in mega cities on demand transit, mm. like, you know, Singapore and, uh, and places like this. And we've seen it work in obviously extremely small rural areas with populations of 10,000 people. Well, well, maybe that's a good, um, a good segue to the question of, you know, has this been done before? Um, and what is it about Blaze that, you know, is, is different about you that's different to what's been done before? Yeah, so so when I thought I came up with the idea for on-demand transit, I was uh, sad, sadly mistaken. Um, you know, you, that's often a thing in entrepreneurship is that you come up with an idea and, and then you go and do a bit of research and you found out, you know, 10 other people have had the same idea. And so so we're not alone in this space, which which often, you know, I I does not worry me too much because it's still very much at the beginning of this transition towards on-demand and it's it's quite a large market. Um, but uh, yeah, there's been dozens of examples across the world. One of the first was actually in Helsinki. Um, they ran on-demand transit with a mobile app uh, in, in, in 2012. So they started running this with smaller, smaller vans uh, uh, from 2012 to 2015, and the service was widely successful. Okay. Um, it was shut down in 2015 from, it was a kind of a policy decision, and they had invested, unfortunately, a lot into a new fleet of vehicles, which made the cost per ride seem extremely elevated mm. uh, compared to the, um, the other fixed services. But uh, they were definitely kind of the... They set. Um, they started this this trend in in the developed world um, towards on demand transportation. Um, but now you see it in uh, all sorts of cities. I know. I know there's at least um, at least a dozen in Canada that have put in place on demand transit systems. Uh, there's several across the U.S. across um, across Asia as well. Uh, but in each of these cities, um, in each of these cities, uh, usually they've come up with their own app. They've either had it developed uh, by uh, an independent contractor, they've built it themselves, um, or they work with one of our competitors who do often a lot of customization to build unique 
kind of solutions for each transit operator or transit authority. Um, and so this is where we saw a huge kind of gap in the market where we thought, well, what if there was a solution that was flexible enough to work for the needs of any type of transit authority mm. on the planet and in any um, in any geography with any sort of resource constraints? So something that was a lot more universal and um, customizable, but by the transit authority without having us to have our team of developers customize it for each one. And so this was really us thinking about how we can scale on demand transit and get it out there to as many um, cities as possible without necessarily, um, you know, reinventing the wheel with each time, which is often what we see with, with our competitors. Um, so it, it, it causes a lot of technical challenges is, you know, how do we have something that works for I don't know what's a small town in the in the UK that you could name, but um, Let's let's say Derby, my favorite favorite Midland city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so so comparing that to like a, to a New York or, or a London, for example. So we wanted yeah. an on-demand transit solution that could work in either of those, uh, and uh, and obviously the um, like how how the drivers are scheduled, how the the vehicles are scheduled, the size of the fleet, the the how the algorithms need to, you know, it's quite a complex optimization problem. So mm. if we're talking about a hundred, a hundred rides uh, per, per hour um, in a small town versus 10,000 rides per hour in a, in a mega city, mm. it's, it's quite a different um, technical challenge to solve. So, so that was the approach that we took where they could adopt our technology. Um, they pay per, per month, um, but it's all customizable and adaptable by them. And if one day they decide, we want to, I don't know, have it run as a, as a bus stop to bus stop service, which is what we usually propose. But then the next day they say, that's not working for us. Let's switch it to um, a door to door service where mm. it's going to pick up people in front of their houses. They can just basically flick a switch and the whole system is adapted to, uh, to what they need. Or if wow. they want to change the rules of operation, things like that. Um, another unique difference is that we've really focused on using the existing infrastructure and uh, that's available. So we would never go into a city and propose using another fleet of vehicles. Typically on demand is most interesting outside of peak hours and outside mm. of peak hours, there's dozens and depending on the city, sometimes hundreds of vehicles available sitting in, in parking garages or parking lots right. um, outside of the city. And so our question is always, why would you go ahead and either rent or, or purchase new, um, new vehicles when you have an existing fleet that's sitting there ready to be used? Um, and so, so again, it's, it's a lot more challenging to do this with 12 meter buses that can hold up to 40 or 50 people, um, a lot more difficult than fitting them inside like taxis or, or, or vans that can fit up to 12. Um, but at the same time, it makes it a lot quicker and easier for yeah. the operators to adopt if all they have to do is install our, our tablets and, 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 you know, hit, hit play basically. Um, so that's, uh, that's a key difference as well from from how we've been able to distinguish ourselves that's that's fascinating so it takes away that that first big hurdle which is the cost cost of entry um and i also love the idea of i mean whenever i i take an uber which i guess is is a is a it was probably maybe the first of these you know um mobility on demand kind yeah. of kind of apps which is obviously you know scaled up globally whenever i take an uber i do feel slightly guilty about adding another car to the road um so i love the idea of of opening an app and getting a bus to my door <laughs> instead yeah, and jumping on exactly. that you know when it's uh yeah when i need to um yeah exactly spe speaking of these sort of other 
other companies you know this is sort of, you're sort of part of this big umbrella of of initiatives that are starting that you could call future of mobility yeah so that's a term i've i've heard a, a lot recently can you just explain a bit about what that is so so to me the future of mobility is is basically um, the application of, of technology to modernize and in many cases revolutionize how we move people and, and objects. Um, mm. I think that's the largest kind of umbrella um, way to describe what's happening. But it ranges from anything from electric vehicles to, uh, to ride hailing apps like Uber to and car sharing to smart traffic signals and 5G communications and pretty much everything in between. Okay. Um, so... Uh, I think it's quite um, interesting, this this industry, a lot of what we see is it's adopting technology that's already been developed or applying it um, in a unique way to, um, to basically improve the efficiency and user experience of transportation services. Just like us, I mean, yes, we're doing some innovative things with our, with our route optimization algorithms, but it's technology that's already there. You know, we're using right. tablets to give dr- drivers navigation instructions. Um, we're using... We're using GPS and from people's smartphones and location services which have existed for, you know, the past 15, 10, 15 years. Um, so it's nothing that's really new. It's just applying it all in this really unique way uh, in this unique formula to make transportation better. And so that's often how I see a lot of these kind of future mobility projects or initiatives um, unfolding. Makes makes sense. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, we, we were uh, one of the biggest... Um, changes i've seen in london in the last few years is the appearance of uh, maybe in like 2018 we saw all the um uh chinese bike companies that were dropping Mm. bikes all over the city many of which got um hit with fines from the local authority because they were blocking you know (laughs) blocking the pavement without a permit which i thought was quite funny Um, but uh yeah we saw this wave of companies coming in uh, and then after a few months, they all disappeared. And I think there's like one or two left around. So th- there seems to be this huge wave of innovation happening. But not uh, obviously not all the companies maybe have their their business model figured out because we've seen a lot of these, particularly, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the bikes, the sharing bikes have yeah. uh, have sort of disappeared. Um, so, but it's not it's not just, so we've got sort of the bike sharing, we've got the sort of, on-demand transit um we've got sort of uber what 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 else is there in sort of happening well i i think that the combination of all of those is something that's that's really big in this um in this space which is often defined as mobility as a service um which is kind of one kind of unified um platform where you can plan out your commute across many of these different services um so uh, I don't know if you've you've heard of a better definition than, than um, from describing mobility as a service, but if you're trying to plan out how to get from A to B, it could propose that you start with a bike sharing to get to a train terminal, and then you end off, you know, with an Uber trip to get you to that last mile of your mm. commute. Um, and all of that is paid for through one uh, central central platform. It's it's and it's all planned through one central platform as well, um, and uh, and and with one global ticket, of course. So I think that's super um, one thing that's super interesting, but the the reality is that we have with all of these, we're also collecting massive and massive amounts of data, mm. and we see that in the public transit space where transit authorities, um, you know, they're um, you know they are doing a lot of things that are they're innovative, but they still 
um, they have so much data, they have access to so much data on how people, how people move around their cities, but they often don't utilize it and don't often know how or have the capacity to utilize it in, 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 a, in a very efficient way. Yeah. And so that's where we can actually come in and, and, and run some analysis, but there's you know, dozens of other firms out there working on this um, because they have data that goes back you know, decades where they, you know, where people are getting on buses, off buses, off uh, trams and, and subways on. Um, and, and so this is something that I think um, will have perhaps the most profound impact because it's, it's kind of doing what we're trying to do, where it's looking at what's happening and then making decisions or making, you know, real-time adjustments based on, on this incoming data. Um, and so, and then, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, you can use this data to start to predict well into the future uh, what right. what may uh, what may happen. So, what ridership is going to look like, how transportations are going to evolve uh, based on changes in the population and things of, of this nature. Yeah, I mean, I totally um, empathize with that. This this thing that we have access to so much data, and it's just just a question of what do I actually do with it. You know, I I I do a lot of work around um, GIS. Um, less to do with transport, but more to do with, uh, you know, just the, the the spatial structure of of cities. And I have this issue as well, is that now there's so much data available online that is kind of open yeah. source, and I can I get into a frenzy of downloading data sets, and then I sort of have them in front of me, and I think, what do I do with all this now? Like, what's the value of this? Um, and so maybe it takes someone someone like you or someone in this space to to actually look at everything that's there. And figure out a unique unique way of combining it or of or of filtering it to sort of exactly. create something new. It, exactly, and and you know just the we we often you know sometimes look at the New York City taxi data set, which has I don't know I'm, I'm, my numbers may be a little bit outdated, but around 110 million rows of, of oh. trips that were taken, <laughs> um, and. So you can go and you is often kind of a, a place where people working on machine learning projects and transportation, they'll go and download this data set and work with this one because it's just so, so much data. Um, but, um, but you're right, is that what do we do with it? How do we, how do we utilize it and also overlap them um, to, make, to make sense of what's currently going on? For example, in our space, we often have access to smart card data. So we know where people tap tap their smart card to get on mm. the bus. But then there's also the automatic passenger counters. So I don't know if uh, your listeners know this, but every time there's often motion sensors on the doors of buses to track the flow of people getting on and off buses. Oh, okay. But we don't know who they are necessarily. Um, so those need to be overlaid then with the smart card data to actually figure out, you know, or estimate where people are getting on and off. Um, and then you have things like survey data that's done for people, you know, origin destination survey data um, or location service um, data that you can buy from telecommunications companies. And, and so how do, how do you kind of use all of these in conjunction to actually get a clear picture uh, of what's going on and, and never mind that, but then figure out what should be, where should we go down the road? So I can understand, I mean, transit operators, city officials, they're not, they're not experts. Even a lot of urban planning um, companies, you know, are not, um, you know, you know, they're not the experts in, um, in big data. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. And so I think, yeah, I think there needs to be a, a lot of collaboration uh, between different experts to make the best use of it. Cause it's a really an untapped resource from what we've seen. Well, it's such a new field as well. Big data. Exactly. I, I think it, and I think probably uh, universities, um, you know, are, are catching up to it, but there's still 
working on the system that you know planning and urban design is something that's done with a a pen and paper and yeah. uh and a, and a rule a scale ruler and everything um so i would lo- i would love to see i mean maybe that's like a, a if you're a young urbanist listening that could be your superpower in your career is to, is to combine planning with smart data or with big data yeah absolutely we were working actually with a few we have a few academic partnerships here in canada with um with um with groups and operations research and transportation planning that are trying to use big big data in in fields like ours so um i think we're getting there great be patient (laughs) so i i have some notes of things that um you know we want to speak about and there's one thing here that i have no idea what it means which is v2x communication yeah so so v2x is um vehicle to everything communication and Uh um and so there's often V2V, which is vehicle to infra, uh, vehicle to vehicle, and then there's V2I, which is vehicle to infrastructure. So connecting vehicles to things like, um, you know, to uh, traffic signals, like traffic lights and things like that, um, to send information back and forth from one another. And then V2X is basically vehicle to to everything. Um, and so that's quite quite interesting because you can actually have, um, and this is very much in the realm of kind of 5G communication because mm-hmm. such large amounts of data can be passed so quickly from, from one point to the next. Um, but you can be passing, you know, vehicle information about how, how fast you're moving, about um, about how many people are, are in a vehicle, things like that, to, to traffic signals, to other vehicles, to um, to to really anything, to mobile phones uh, that are on the road uh, so that you can start communicating um uh, between those objects and 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 optimizing between them uh and and there's you know a wide variety of applications between telling you know vehicles that are further uh behind in the traffic flow kind of what the traffic will be in a few minutes so that you can better plan routes and things of of this of this sort um so you know how we use ways basically right now to self um, self-declare if there's construction, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, if there's a cop on the road. Um, but now this would, it, you know, with um, with 5G, this could allow it to happen uh, automatically and instantaneously uh, oh. if all these devices are now connected. Um, so so it's, a, it's an area that I'm interested in and I think we'll eventually get into at Blaze and, and how we can um, really send, send information between our network, but um, of, of buses that are running on demand but uh, I think it's um, uh, definitely a space that's going to uh, really have the potential to revolutionize transportation in the future as well so something this reminds me of is is autonomous vehicles which which definitely obviously need to communicate with other vehicles and with their surroundings yeah that, that's exactly it so uh, how, how do you basically send you know imagine you have someone that's um that's uh about to you know cross the cross the street or for example and then you need to you can actually communicate directly with the smartphone uh that's in their pocket with the the the, the antennas that are on the vehicle to let them know that they're headed to cross the street um but there's all sorts of um applications of it definitely the autonomous vehicle industry is making good use of, of this from my knowledge right right um, i mean we're seeing we're seeing the sort of early developments with tesla um, and I know there's different companies testing this sort of autonomous vehicle technology. Still, mm-hmm. I, I was reading earlier today. Um, so there's this classic thing that there's five stages of, of automation. And someone made a comment that it, we say there's five, but really it feels like there's a thousand 
because it's so mm. many incremental improvements in all these different technologies um you know exactly. to get there do do you think do you think that's you know a realistic thing we're going to see in the, in the near future it's a good question i mean i've at, at conferences and stuff i've seen some fully autonomous buses which have really freaked me out in some ways but at the same <laughs> time you know uh, gotten me really excited for what's to come um i'm by no means an, an expert in 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 uh, automation when it comes to um vehicles and, and transportation but what i i would say is that um autonomous or not uh we really have to think about the the environmental impact and also the impact on congestion and traffic flow of autonomous vehicles i think that's something that's often not fully discussed in um you know in the conversation around autonomous vehicles is how this will impact uh traffic models and also public transportation mm. if um you know one of the big um conveniences of using public transit is that you don't have to be focused on the road you can get from a to b you may be a little bit it may take you a little bit longer and you you know you have to go wait at a bus stop but you know while you're on the bus you can be productive you can take the time to relax to read a book to get some homework done um but now autonomous vehicles could allow you to sit in traffic and have that same sort of experience um and so i always love this picture that's you know shared on across like social media um where it shows you know if, you know it has a picture of a, of a road on one side with 50 um uh you know uh, non-autonomous vehicles and then 50 autonomous vehicles <laughs> and it takes up the same amount of space on the road it's basically <laughs> just the same picture twice um and exactly. so uh so it's not going to do much for reducing our congestion it may there's a lot of fears that it may actually increase the amount of congestion we have in our cities and on the environmental front as well um there's you know we talk about often many autonomous vehicles are also electric vehicles but that doesn't have to be the case uh, as well um so again if we have if people don't now mind sitting in traffic because they can get work done watch a movie and things like that um what's uh what's uh what's stopping them from doing so with their combustion vehicles so i think that we just have to be um be careful in in terms of uh how you know um in terms of how we encourage people to use it and also the the message that autonomous vehicles means for some reason that it's more sustainable because that's often something that I feel like is is mm. conveyed um which I really um I don't think that's the case. Yeah, it's not necessarily the case and and as you said I mean it could actually act to to act, reduce people taking public transport so it could be work against us exactly. in that sense. On on the contrary what is really interesting and um and hopefully I'm not revealing too many of our ideas for the future of our company <laughs> is that if you you know with the completely autonomous vehicles where you don't need a driver whatsoever um you can now you know there's talks of of releasing your vehicle onto the road while you're at work and you don't need it and it'd be going to pick up people and drop off people um kind of like Uber does but without any driver on board yeah yeah and so that we can actually uh reduce the number of vehicles that are needed overall because uh you you can you're making use of these unused assets like i think Uber makes that argument as well that your vehicle is sitting there for like 90 something percent of the time just yes, doing yeah. nothing un un unused 
um, and, and Turo as well. Turo, uh, I don't know if you guys have that in the UK where you can rent out your vehicle yeah. um, if you're not using it for the weekend. And so um, so if, if we can actually, uh, you know, reduce the number of vehicles that are on the road through something, through services like this, uh, we're now, and, and you can also group multiple rides so that you could fill up all four or five seats in these, in these autonomous vehicles, um, fill them up with passengers that need to go um, to different places without actually ever purchasing their own autonomous vehicles. I think that's a super interesting mm. um, area that uh, I'm excited for because all these vehicles will need optimization. It'll all be on demand and hopefully our, our technology will be there to support these types of services. Yeah, I think, I think there's really interesting potential there. The thing with with private vehicles is they have what you would call negative externalities, which basically mm. means you owning a car causes problems for everyone else. Exactly. So, you know, it's it's causing pollution when you're parked, it's taking up space. Um, when there's lots of cars, that adds up to a lot of space in our cities. Um, and, you know, but most cars are, are just parked and not being used for, you know, 90% of the time. Um, and also, I mean, when you really, I mean, I think it's a big aspiration for people to, to own their own car because of the, the personal freedom that comes with it. When you actually sit down and look at the numbers, it's a real pain to own a car because first of all, they're, they're expensive to buy. And then, you know, to maintain and you have to pay insurance, you have to pay for the fuel. If you really look at it logically, um, and I think more and more young people um, are looking at it in, in this way, they realize, actually, if I, if I, can avoid owning a car like it, it has such a positive effect on my finances and the environment and i'll probably get more physical exercise because i'm out uh walking cycling taking the bus um instead of just sitting in my in my car exactly and and that's that's exactly where i i came at it from where i i had access to my parents vehicle going back to my kind of origin story there um, but I wouldn't take it for sustainability, you know, purposes and, and, and things like that. And so the question is, you know, if these young people are more, which they are, it's proven that they are more willing to use public transit than any generation previous uh, to them. Um, how can we keep public transit up to their expectations that they get with other services. So how can we be uh, resolving a lot of these pain points um, that they currently have around with the reliability, the flexibility of the services and the length of commute? And that's where we're coming in to basically try to give public transit the facelift it needs to stay competitive with um, with what's expected from, from these younger generations. Um, something else I'd like to add to, um, I'm sure the stats are similar in Canada, but like you said, it's um, a lot of People think that uh, the major cost of owning cars is just um, is just the initial purchase, but um, there's been studies here in Canada that uh, it costs just under ten thousand dollars on average um, per year to own a vehicle. So wow. when you factor in like the cost of the vehicle over the lifetime, uh, the depreciation, all the um, all the insurance, the oil, the gas, the parking, uh, everything like that, it's 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 insanely expensive. And another fun fun fact, I was recently um, interviewing this this master's uh, student in, in transportation planning that had looked um, at the impact of student discounts and um, and discounts for for young people um, across many transit authorities in Canada, and found that interestingly enough, they had zero the discounts themselves being implemented had zero impact on ridership for the age groups or for the populations that they. Um, that they were basically built to serve. And so this 
to me initially, you know, it seems surprising, but if it's between, you know, having a 30%, paying 30% more for public transit versus buying a vehicle and paying about $10,000 extra per year, um, I think a lot of people are starting to do the math and realize that, hey, you know, regardless of this discount or not, it still makes a lot more <laughs> sense for me to take public transit. That's my explanation of it anyway. Definitely not cited anywhere in academia, but um, <laughs> but I think that, yeah, like you said, it's, it's really um, promising to see how many young people are using it. Um, and, uh, and they're thinking not just about their, you know, the cost, but also um, the f- physical activity, you know, if they can get more steps in that way, if they can get more fresh air that way, more, d- more work done as well. Like I mentioned, it's, it's quite a popular place for people to, to either spend time reading or, or, or responding to emails, things like that. Listening to, to podcasts. Yeah. Listening to podcasts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I was, go- I was going to say that's 10,000 Canadian dollars, presumably. Oh yes. Yeah. Exactly. So probably so- between so five like and six thousand pounds, yeah. yeah pounds sterling still a lot of money <laughs> yeah. everything sounds a bit more dramatic in in canadian dollars to us yeah exactly <laughs> by, uh, almost two there with our current exchange rate <laughs> exactly but i think um i mean i think this this point about uh future of mobility new technology and how that fits with sustainability um and carbon mm. you know zero carbon goals is really really important one because often they're conflated you know they're 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 talked about as if they're the same thing whereas actually um i mean i mean they're not they're not necessarily and you need to look at it a bit more closely um and think about uh, the long term consequences you know if we're if we're if we're really innovating to to make everyone uh you know much more reliant on private vehicles even if they're electric autonomous vehicles it still is creating problems uh, you know, for our cities. And, um, you know, for instance, one thing that a, a previous podcast guest told me that I actually didn't realize uh, to do with air quality. So um, the the most damaging um, uh, elements of air pollution for humans is particulate matter. So you probably see it written as PM10 and PM2.5. That's the, the size of the particles. They're They're absolutely microscopic. Um, and these are the these are the particles that are doing you know the, the most damage to your lungs basically. And where these come from is not from burning fossil fuels; it's from um, materials wearing down. And so it's car tires mm. and brake pads uh, from cars wearing down to these microscopic particles, and then they're they're right. they're floating in the air. Wow. And so even if you move to elect, even if all the cars in the world turned electric, the prob- that problem wouldn't go away. Um, so that's something to really bear in mind. So really, the only way to yeah. tackle that issue is, you know, having a, a a large modal shift to walking, cycling, public transport, and just having less vehicles overall. Exactly. And another, uh, you know, aspect too is, is at least, um, you know, in Canada or in, in where we're from in Quebec, we're lucky that our renewable, that our energy sources are from renewable energy sources like hydro. Um, but in the US, if you, there's many places where if you own, uh, an electric vehicle that's being charged with energy that's produced by coal-fired plants. Um, and so, you know, yes, it's it's electric, so it's not directly polluting, but the energy that you're you're drawing from the grid is actually fossil, you yeah. know, c- comes from fossil fuels. Um, so it's super interesting to know. I did not know uh, um, that uh, about those particular matter um, uh, about those particles. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that we need to, 
be very conscious of the kind of negative externalities and the secondary impacts of those externalities on um, on society uh, and 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 the environment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're we're recording this in October of 2020. We were just discussing before we hit record about our respective lockdown measures in yes. Canada and the UK. I think COVID-19 has been a has been a, a big hit for the public transport sector um because uh of course people don't want to be in close contact with other people. Um so I mean how do you think that's affecting the industry is, is that going to be a long-term issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't have a crystal ball, so if it's going to be a, a long-term <laughs> issue, but but so far, I mean, I think that we've seen many people permanently change their transportation patterns based on changes that they've had to make in their lifestyle due to COVID-19. Um, just last week, I saw in the news that um, that Microsoft announced that some employees will be able to be permanently working from home. Uh, we personally don't have an office space anymore. So even if the, the the cities do open up, there isn't even an office for employees to go back to. Everyone's yes. staying remote. And so many tech companies that don't need it to you know physically go in have followed suit. So I think that uh, it's definitely um, reshaped how we think about how people, you know, is it really necessary for us to to move and to leave our homes to get certain things done? Um, and then you've seen a lot of, um, of, of fear emerge as well with regards to public transportation, um, just because of the fact that people don't know if they're going to be on a bus uh, with, with, you know, 40 other people in cramped like sardines, mm-hmm. or if they're going to be alone and be able to socially distant. So um, th- this is why you're still seeing huge, you know, drops in, in ridership is because of the fact that there's you know, students who are working from home, vulnerable populations, like, like older people are more reluctant to use public transit, um, professionals are working from home. Um, so again, I wish I had these stats for, for, for the UK, but in most cities that we speak to around North America, ridership is still at 50%. Even before the second wave hit, it was still at 50% of what it was before, um, before COVID hit. And so... You know, I was asked this question: like, is it is it possible to maintain um, your current operations at fifty percent of ridership, which translates to fifty percent of the revenue that you had yeah. coming in uh, before COVID? And uh, and so, transit authorities now are starting to, in my opinion, blindly cut service where there's simply mm. lower ridership. Um, that's how they're, they're 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 saving money right now. But I think this is quite. A dangerous precedent to go down to um, down towards because you enter into what uh, um, I like to think of as the transit death spiral, where ridership drops, so they decrease service, and then because of the decreased service, ridership is going to drop some more because it's yes. less available, and then they're going to less revenue, so they're going to decrease service some more, and this you know continues on and on. And so what we always propose is if you have the option between you know removing service or just replacing service with an on-demand one, um, going with the latter actually allows you to maintain that same quality of service but at a lesser cost. Uh, so so I think that. Um, and and it's it's frightening as well because I don't think it's going to be easy to get back these riders for people that have yeah. you know had to still commute maybe people that are essential service workers um, they don't have a choice and they don't you know their service was decreased so now they've 
purchased a vehicle, they've made arrangements to carpool, it's going to be very difficult to get those people back into public transit if or when this is all over. Um, and so I think transit authorities and, and operators need to think very uh, hard about the decisions that they're making um, and, uh, and, and really using innovation as a solution. It's uh, in the past, it was, um, you know, projects like ours and, and other of these future mobility ones were seen as kind of these nice side projects that made good, um, you know, good press releases. And, and it was very cool and things like that to talk about um, a lot of them. But now these are real solutions that can actually solve many of the challenges they're facing um, due to COVID-19 because it's exposed all the flaws, not just in transit, but in, but in our healthcare systems, our education systems as well. Um, it's exposed so many flaws and how we get out of, of these kind of you know, unique challenges is, I think, with uh, with innovation. And so, I would just encourage any um, any planners or city officials listening to think about how how they can make the best use of technology to get themselves out of these situations. Wow, very well said. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a huge. There's been a huge shift now across society where the the sort of idea of doing things remotely was was talked about for decades i mean back in yeah you know back in like the, the 70s people were saying like oh in in the future we'll you'll never have to leave your home you know everything will be yeah. done you know and it never really happened until a global pandemic hit and and we were forced, forced to do everyone. it yeah. and and what we've most people i think have realized is that actually it's everything works fine like you can if if you were obviously it depends your what kind of work you're doing if you're working in sort of the knowledge economy where you're working on computers and you're in contact with people you know you can be in you know you can just pick up the phone and talk to people it work seems to work fine um obviously if you run a, a butcher's or you know a physical uh, yeah. place obviously you know you, they're the people who are really it's suffering good. and i don't mean to yeah. to to sort of you know forget about that because obviously we do need to to have people still going out and using their local services using their high street Exactly. And how do we create that balance as well? I mean, now, you know, we've, and, and I think that's what's, um, you know, another topic that uh, I, I love to discuss is, is the food delivery space as well, mm. um, with all these local merchants and, and the huge, huge um, uh, cut that, that services like Uber Eats are taking, you know, up to 30% of, of the revenue from, from these. And already oh, the yeah. margins in the restaurant industry are so, so so slim um, and now all these people are, are going in just to keep their jobs and keep their restaurants afloat yet 30 percent of their revenue which has already been hugely decreased due to covid is now going to these large corporations like uber who are providing these software services once uh once again so um i think we really need to think of how we can protect some of these small local businesses keep driving people towards them maybe reorienting some transit routes so that they pass in front of these local places, who knows, but uh, I, I completely agree. I think it's, um, you know, in some industries, it makes a lot of sense, but in others, it's, it's obviously not possible. And we still need to think about them. And actually in Montreal, the mayor just before the second wave was encouraging people in the business district to come back to work. You yeah. know, initially they were extremely conservative um, and they had put limits that you weren't allowed more than 25% capacity in buildings, but they were only, they had gotten up to five or 10%. Um, they were, you know, they're basically mm. these huge skyscrapers were empty. And so all the, the coffee shops, the restaurants, the local stores and boutiques around them uh, were, were not seeing any, any clients. And so, 
um, yeah, it's quite a, uh, you know, a scary time for a lot of business owners out there. And, and even for the ones that can go remote, I think we need to think really um, hard as, as entrepreneurs and as, as, as leaders in the business space, how um, we uh, engage with our employees and how uh, we encourage them to think about their own mental well-being on their own, given that there's no, um, there's no disconnect between their home lives and their, and their work lives anymore. I think it's our, our duty to really encourage people to, to go outside, to get fresh air, to go exercise, to take time with their, with themselves, because it's so easy when you're just, you know, your, your, your living room is right here. You're working from your kitchen to just, you know, continuously stay on and never, never shut off. But that's maybe a little bit off, off topic <laughs> with uh, public transit, but uh, I think it all ties together because things, things have changed and, yeah, it's, I don't know if they will ever go back to how they were before. You, you did remind yeah. me of uh, something is we haven't talked at all about um, moving goods. Um, so not mm. just moving people, but also freight and, and, and delivery and things like that. Um, is there anything you want to add on that? Well, I think that's another topic where technology like ours can come in, in handy. Um, you know, it's, like I said, we're not uh, we're not reinventing the wheel, but there, you know, a lot of these smaller companies do struggle to um, to actually optimize their operations efficiently. And and some, like for food delivery or for uh, for package delivery, we see sequential delivery still in 2020, which means you basically like if you have a driver, it picks one object up drops it off and then goes back, picks something up and drops it off. And so there's none of this multi-pickup, multi-drop-off um, optimization. And, and also with requests coming in in real time, it's really, really difficult if you have a whole fleet of vehicles and you have everything that's changing in real time to basically trying to figure out what the best way yeah. to re-dispatch all these vehicles are when they're doing multi-pickup and multi-drop-off. Um, and, so, and so this leads to not only a huge you know, extra cost, that could be avoided um, but also you could be serving these these you know these orders with a significantly you know less um uh, with significantly less vehicles on the road yeah uh and so i think they need to also be thinking about their operations and te technology that they're using um to make sure that they're you know, serving as many people as possible with the least amount of, of vehicles and the least amount of time these vehicles spend on the road if we really want to keep this industry sustainable. Mm. That's the only thing I'll add add there. Um, but if, if I could just add on as well for uh, something else on the public transportation side, which I find is a quite dangerous path, is that any sort of transportation is really a gateway to economic opportunity. Um, right. And so if you start reducing reducing service and you know making it difficult for people to access jobs and to access parts of the city um, or or stripping lines entirely so you don't have any access to public transit and you can't afford a vehicle um, well then you're um, you're you know you're so limited in terms of what you can get access to so I think that we really need to be thinking hard about how we alter our transportation services and the same thing applies for delivery tying it back to that you know if you have um you know and you know some of these companies do not actually serve will not serve outside of a certain geographic area and so you know if they can't get access to um to, to food delivery to parcel delivery because you're just located so far outside the city because that's the only place that you can afford to live you're potentially at a disadvantage just because of where you are geographically, which I, I don't think is the case. 
Um, but to make everything more accessible, we need some level of optimization to occur. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's really just about looking at, you know, seeing this these glaring inefficiencies and saying, you know, we can we can do this a better way with, with just a bit of technology, technology that already exists. You know, it's really just about getting it off the ground. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, like, uh, well, I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but the whole concept of on-demand transit, tying it back there, has existed for a few decades for people with disabilities, um, mm. where you could call in 24, 48 hours before and have a vehicle dispatched to your home, and, and it brings you to medical appointments or wherever you need to go if, if you need um, extra accessibility. But, you know, you think about that, where you need to request some time, and, and it still exists today, we still speak to cities where you have to call in 20, uh, 48 hours in advance, speak to a person, they put, you know, an, two X's on a map and then hand that map to <laughs> a driver. Um, two days later, when the trip actually occurs and they're planning things and schedules up by hand. Um, and so, so like you said, I think, uh, you know, these concepts are not, are not brand new, um, but, uh, but the technology that can really make all the difference like that, that I think it needs to be um, deployed properly so that we can be serving more people with less resources. Another point you, you brought up there, which I think is really important, is um, this idea of, of um, serving all members of, of society. Um, mm -hmm. And there's almost, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a social justice issue, but it's, 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 it's almost an, you know, an equality issue where, you, where often in cities um, that have established uh, transport networks, the um, the areas that are best served by public transport are often the wealthiest, and mm -hmm. there's a bit of chicken and egg there because, you know, if you put in an underground line or or a tram line, that will raise the property values um, around it, and then so yeah. over time you tend to get wealthy people, you know, accumulating in in close proximity to to metro stations and things like that, but um, it it is still something we need that I think is not discussed often on the strategic level, which is, you know, are the people um, most in need of this transport so that they can get access to, to you know, job opportunities mm -hmm. um, and other parts of the city? You know, are they being served? It's not just about the business people who have to come in and work in, in an office. Um, it's all also about, you know, it can be facilitative of, of uh, economic regeneration as well and, and should be. Exactly. And it's, it's not only access as well, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's also the, the time that it takes for people to get access to these. So, you know, imagine someone that spends, um, you know, two hours commuting to downtown London for a minimum, you know, paying, paying job. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, they could be spending up to four hours a day of lost economic activity just because, you know, it takes them so long to get them from A to B. So if we can be giving them time back in their day to actually uh, work more, spend time with their families or, or doing whatever they want, um, I think this is another huge issue that's that's overlooked. You know, it's it's not enough to say, okay, well, they can, they do have access to anywhere in the city, but, you know, a, a commute that in a car takes 10 minutes, takes them an hour and a half in public <laughs> transit, um, that I, I would not say is, is, uh, is very equitable or, um, or accessible in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, I think that we really need to consider who, 
who's using it, and then how can we build a system around these users that is best adapted to their needs? I think it's as simple as that. And if it's if it's not, then we need to change it and change it as often as we need to. And that's where kind of we get closer and closer to this on-demand um, instance. Um, but before I jump into the final question, is, is there any other topics you that we haven't touched on that you want to bring up? I mean, the concept of microtransit, which is often what we're grouped into. Okay. I don't know if you mind if I just jump into that and just draw some comparisons. Yeah, there. absolutely. Please do. So, so microtransit is a field of uh, of on-demand transit, a subset, um, but it's often defined by these smaller vehicles running door-to-door -door or last-mile services. And so the technology ends up being very similar. Our technology can do a lot of these microtransit use cases, um, but it's a whole different ballpark when you start working with the bus stop network as well and figuring out which bus stop to send people to to reduce the entire commute of, uh, of passengers. And, so, and, and also the size of the vehicle that is used. So the cost per vehicle for most microtransit use cases is comparable to that of, of paratransit for people with disabilities. It's extremely high cost per trip because mm. it's just not efficient to go to 12 people's doors and pick them up uh, and then bring all 12 people to their destination. Um, and so, so the way that we've designed our system is more, once again, to use these full-size buses, but to head to a network of stops. And these stops that we send people to are chosen by us which is, is really interesting because if you think where you're, wherever you are now, wherever our listeners are coming from, if you think about within a 10 minute walking radius, how many bus stops could you possibly hit? Um, you know, if you're located in some sort of downtown city, you could easily walk to 20 or 30 or 50 bus stops within a 10 minute walking radius. Um, and so we decide which bus stop we send you to, to get picked up at to actually reduce the overall commute. And, right. uh, and so this is kind of a small but quite significant differentiator between us and microtransit. Um, so so we, we can do, whether, like I said, whether it be door-to-door -door or let the user pick the bus stop or we pick the bus stop or, you know, a taxi or a minivan or a, a, a you know, a 12-meter bus um, and everything in between. But I think there is a right model that, that, that kind of could work for a city and it's important to really think about um, are we doing this just for the users or also just for the cost or is there a way that we can accommodate both? And that's kind of where we try to fit is in that middle part where we're actually saving money, but we're still improving that user experience. Yeah, it's, it's, that's like the ultimate win-win, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you, you get these like microtransit services, which are, are great for the user because it's like you literally walk outside your door and there's a bus or a small a mini bus, say, or, a, or a, a, one of those sprinter vans waiting for you. Um, but then the cost per trip is, is significantly higher than the fixed bus services that right. are on the road right now. Um, and so, and then the fixed bus service obviously has no consideration for what the user wants at that point. Um, but, the you know, the cost per trip, uh, can, can be quite high. And so we try to fall somewhere in the middle there, a good user experience at a lower cost per trip. Fantastic. Yeah. So as this, um, as this podcast is about climate change for the most part, um, I like to ask every guest, you know, similar question as the final question, which is you know, what changes would you like to see happening in the coming decades? Um, this is quite a transitional time for action on climate change. And we have a lot of um, countries and cities who have signed up to achieving zero carbon. So we've got this huge challenge ahead of us. 
we seem to be mostly going in the right direction. But from your perspective, what what needs to happen? Um, so I think we need to really um, re rebuild a lot of these systems that we have in place around um, around reality and what users actually want. And if we do this in a sustainable way, they're going to follow. And I think that's um, you know if if we're you know, expecting people to use public transportation, well, we need to change it so that it solves a lot of their biggest pain points. If we want people to use electric vehicles, we need to be solving problems, whether it be financially or access to, um, to cheap electricity, things like that. We need to really be thinking about if we want people and businesses to change their behavior, um, let's make give them something that's worth changing it for and making sure that whatever that thing is, is more sustainable than what's currently in place. Right. And that's what we're trying to do with public transportation. We want to get people out of their single occupant vehicles, you know, and ideally um, out, especially out of the ones which are, are combustion powered and are not electric, um, get them out of those vehicles and into shared sustainable transportation uh, like public transit or even carpooling or, or, or ride sharing and things like this. So, to do that, like I said, we're thinking about why do people not like public transportation in the first place, which is always the reliability, the frequency, yeah. and the length of commute, and we're trying to solve those. And so we're not pushing them towards public transit because it's sustainable. It, it, I think, you know, it is. But I think our message here is that, you know, come towards public transportation because we've made it a heck of a lot better. Yeah. At the same time, it is also, you know, way more sustainable. But I think to drive behavioral change, uh, we need to, uh, you know, get into uh, the, the minds of the people that require the changing and realize that people are um, inherently, you know, they think about themselves first. And, and I think that's just a, a quality of human nature, not, not any, I'm not trying to pass judgment or anything, but I think this is something that we can use to actually, uh, you know, affect change when it comes to um, environmental sustainability. So, and I, I think that's kind of generic enough that it can be applied to many different um, problems that, that we face. No, that's a, that's a great answer. And it's a great perspective on it. I mean, really, it's the only way because you're you know we're always constantly asking people to change change their lifestyles and change their habits but if we don't give them a good alternative you know then how can you expect it to happen yeah exactly and the same thing for for businesses as well you know like often and and it does off like work both ways or if you're making something more say fuel efficient well you know you're saving costs uh, often in, in that in that regard like there's you know another startup we know here that um that has a, a technology to make um to retrofit trucks to make them uh, hybrid basically mm. um and so they're doing this for for you know sustainability reasons where they want to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of these of these trucks that are on the road but it also can you know reduce the fuel consumption and costs of these freight companies uh significantly and so that's you know you know that's how they sell it is through that oh, yeah. but the direct benefit is that it's reducing the negative externalities of their operations so i think um that's how we need to go about this if we really want to uh, to impact change. It's, you know, it's nice to think that people are going to do things just for environmental reasons, but the reality is, is that if we're not, you know, improving their situation, reducing their costs, making things easier for them, um, you know, the chances are less likely. Yeah, absolutely. 
Justin, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Likewise, Ross. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about uh, everything transportation and sustainability and climate change with you. It's uh, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure um, getting to uh, speak with you today. If um, wh- where can people find you online or, or learn more about Blaze? Yeah, if they want to learn more about uh, Blaze, they can go to our website at blazetransit.com. That's B-L-A-I-S-E transit.com. Um, or look us up on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, under the, the name Blaze Transit. Fantastic. Um, right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ross.